I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, Uncompromising Orthodoxy. The story of God is also our story, the story about the human condition, the awful mess we're in, the human problem, and what God has done about it. You know, Ted Bundy is nowhere near... Ah, yeah, it looked funny as I started to read it. Ted Bundy is nowhere near the world's most prolific or brutal serial killer, but he is easily amongst the world's most famous. And I think the reason why is that Bundy sees the fleeting pop culture imagination and attention spam during the 70s and 80s because despite expectations as to how a man responsible for such violence and depravity might look and sound, Bundy showed up in the public square, and he was handsome and well-dressed and well-spoken. He had a degree in psychology. He studied law, and he carried out more than 30 horrific, violent crimes. But then, at the very end of his life, he allegedly got saved. The day before his execution, evangelical author James Dobson interviewed Ted Bundy in prison. It's a fascinating interview. You can go read it or watch, uh, I mean, watch it or read the transcript online. But at one point, Dobson said to Bundy, and this is a quote, there's a tremendous cynicism about you on the outside, I suppose for good reason. I'm not sure there's anything you could say that people would believe, yet you told me that you have accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and are a follower and believer in him. Do you draw strength from that as you approach these final hours? And Ted replied, I do. He had been, he said, born again. In fact, midway through their conversation, the prison lights dim And they learned later that it was the executioners readying the electric chair that would kill Bundy the next morning. Why would anyone be cynical, as Dobson suggested, that Bundy had become a Christian on death row? Was it because Bundy had been his, most of his life a known manipulator, a, a liar, a sociopath? Is it just hard to believe someone who had done such terrible things to so many young women could ever become someone who followed Jesus? Can God save someone like Ted Bundy? Do people like Ted Bundy get saved? Can God save rapists and killers and sexual deviants like King David? Or can God redeem those who hate and hurt and kill Christians like the Apostle Paul? Can God meet someone in the twilight moments of their sordid stories and at the very last minute redeem years of evil like the thief who died beside Jesus asking, will you remember me in your kingdom? And what's wrong with us that we need saving? Do we need saving? Do you? Do I? Are we like King David or like the thief or like Ted Bundy? What does God want with us anyway? We are in a series all about rediscovering the doctrinal foundation of the early church and the Christian movement because we know that belief compels action and what you believe, what you do, shapes the person that you are becoming. Tonight, we are talking about what's wrong with us, why we need saving, and what saving even means, and what God has done about this predicament. So let me tell you a story that most of you already know. In the beginning, God wanted company, more than He already had. There was God Himself, Yahweh, one God in three persons, one God already eternally and always in loving relationship. 
and God wanted company. So he did what artists do, and he created swirling cosmic bodies, Elohim, spiritual beings, images of the one true creator God, sort of a, a heavenly staff team, if you will. Not God, not equal to God, not comparable to God. They are gods with a lowercase g. And God intended to rule and reign with this staff team, this divine council, to accomplish his creative and collaborative will. Collaborative. To actually collaborate with Yahweh, his divine counsel will require autonomy or freedom, the ability to make real decisions of real consequence rather than pre-programmed automatons that can only carry out divine algorithms. So God created them free, a wild Free cosmos, a divine council with real intelligence and awareness and will. And the universe, in other words, is not helpless against God's determinative puppeteering because God didn't want it that way. He could have made a universe like that had he wanted to, but he did not. And God did not require collaborators in the first place. But Yahweh prefers to share authority. And so comes the first rebellion. See, many of us read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth as the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. But if you keep reading the Bible's epic narrative, it doesn't take long for you to realize you have been dropped into a story already in progress. So you get to chapter 3 and suddenly you're asking questions like, wait, why is there a talking, lying snake in God's good garden? Where did it come from? How did it go bad? What does it want? Innumerable great movies and novels begin the same way. Darth Vader is already chasing the rebellion in the opening shot of Star Wars. The comedian has already died on the first page of Alan Moore's Watchmen. Gregor Samsa has already been transformed in his sleep into a giant insect in the opening sentence of Kafka's Metamorphosis. So in the beginning is like that shot in Star Wars or the opening line of the Metamorphosis, the beginning of the story, but... It is a story already in progress. How do we know? You just keep reading. Keep reading, and you'll learn that before, in the beginning, members of the divine council had become uninterested in God's authority, had become preoccupied with themselves as gods, as rulers of their own destiny rather than obedient subjects to the Creator God. And there was a war and violence in the spiritual realm, and there was chaos and disorder and these rebellious gods with a lowercase g, the Bible also calls them things like angels or demons, they were cast out with their leader. Their leader, who enters our story in chapter 3 as a talking, lying snake. So there was the first rebellion, but God did not scrap the project. He's an artist, so he did what artists do, and he went on creating. And God appointed further creatures for his divine collaborative purposes, and they were called the humans. Collaborative. God granted the same freedom and autonomy he granted the spiritual beings, the Elohim, because God was not interested in coercion or divine determination. He wanted company. God wanted Love. And so the humans were given choice, real choice, not a sham, not a put on. And the choice was to trust Yahweh's collaborative will or else reject it. And where you have choice, you have the contingency for good or evil. And so came the second rebellion. The leader of the spiritual rebellion, an outcast, former member of the divine council, came to the humans and promised them their own kingdom. Don't you want to be like God? He asked them. And it's an interesting question. Ask yourself the same question. 
The spiritual rebel called God's trustworthiness into question. It, it appealed to the freedom of the human beings to choose, and so they chose. Rebellion. And this rebel leader, which the Bible will later describe as the adversary or Hasatan or the Satan in Hebrew, the adversary because it is in rebellion against God, against everything good, the source of our predicament, the mess that we're in. And so twice now the project has gone off the rails because God is interested in authentic relational love, not pre-programmed drones. He has granted His creatures choice, and where there is choice, there is the contingency for good or evil. Some of God's spiritual collaborators have attempted to seize their own authority over God, and they have deceived and corrupted God's human collaborators with that same ideology. This is the very beginning of the story. Now, I would have given up after the first catastrophic rebellion, the second one would have been too discouraging for my fragile ego to bear. But not so with God. The triune, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, all good, all loving artist, one and only creator God of the entire universe wanted company. A company truly and genuinely reciprocated by the autonomous, freely chosen will of the creation, and so God persisted. In fact, at one point when God's gracious gestures of cosmic creative love have been met with disastrous rebellion, at a point when God is well within His rights to pronounce judgment and end the project altogether, He makes a promise instead. Not only will He persist, God promises to pursue His rebellious creation to the point of redemption. One day, he says, a human being will come to do battle against the spiritual rebel. This rescuing figure, this human, will crush the snake, but not before he is struck with a death blow in the process. And this cryptic promise rings out over the opening scenes of the Bible story, as God has thus been depicted as infinitely loving, infinitely good, and prepared to chase after his unrequited love. And God's redemption project goes forward but not all that well. God is looking for something, faithfulness, not perfection, but faithfulness, obedience to do justice, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with God. And God will be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Yes, He will take evil seriously, but His mercy and His capacity for forgiveness exceed His disciplinary punishment a thousand to one. And so there are more people, some better than others, glimpses of faithfulness, moments of righteousness, but always with more rebellion, more disobedience, more evil. And God selects a person, one person, a man called Abram, later called Abraham, and he tells Abram his plan that through his descendants, God will raise up that Satan-crushing king that he promised back at the beginning of the story. And from Abraham's line, kings appear. There's David, for example, one of the more famous kings, a man after God's own heart, so the story goes. And you think, maybe this is the guy, but no. David, as with the first humans, as with those former members of the divine council, rebels against God's good vision for creation. And yet, God appears yet again with the promise, someone is coming, you'll see. 
And so more kings come, king after king after king, chasing after power and wealth and sex and military violence, chasing after other gods, all of them infected by Hasatan, the Satan, the adversary, the great anti-force against God. Nothing like the political leaders, all political leaders, right and left, of today. And the project stutters and spirals. That was a joke, by the way, sarcasm. I didn't want anyone to mistake that for real. And the project stutters and spirals and descends into chaos again and again and again. No king, no kingdom. We were created to rule with God, to have dominion over the earth, kings and queens made to collaborate with God and share in His good reign. But we don't want to share dominion. We want our own dominion. And God intended to be our king, a good king. We wanted all the goodness that God had to offer. We just didn't want God. We wanted the kingdom without the king. And it's sort of failure on loop. And as you read about Israel blowing it for hundreds of pages across the Old Testament, a horrible realization starts to set in. Israel was supposed to be God's agent of salvation, but Israel needs saving. The story of the Bible, and I would argue that the story pressing in on us from all sides every single day, is that on our own, we can't fix the world ourselves, not with our political systems or our little slogans or protests or emojis, and we can erect our little causes and wave our little flags, be they red, white, and blue, or black, or rainbows, and we can kneel before our little idols, and we chase after our little identities in the doomed effort to lend some sliver of meaning to this empty, screaming void, absolutely convinced of how important it all is. And we can do some good stuff, and we can certainly do some bad stuff, but we simply cannot resolve the world's brokenness because we are broken. People can't save people when people need saving. And the story escalates along these lines until the Old Testament concludes unresolved. Israel is waiting to be saved from her sins, and the haunting realization sets in that the collaborators have all crumbled. It's over. If anyone is going to fix this, it's going to have to be God Himself. The human project, its kingship and its kingdoms, has fundamentally and conclusively failed. And first century Jews were waiting for this. They were crying out to God for this, for the kingdom of God, the promise of the Satan-crushing king, because God was the one who promised it. Through an anointed king, the Messiah, everything would be put back together again. But where is he? And then there's Babylon and exile and Rome and suffering and oppression and waiting and waiting and waiting for the king and the kingdom. Israel is still under Roman oppression. When the New Testament opens, there has been no revolt, no uprising. They had not reclaimed their ancestral land from the pagan enemy. Everything is still broken. Violence and oppression and racism and injustice and slavery and political unrest run rampant all over the world. Again, nothing like today. And then... Into darkness and obscurity and controversy steps a peasant stonemason turned self-taught rabbi called Yeshua Manatzarat, or Jesus, who is from Nazareth. Jesus, from the line of Judah, David, and Abraham, comes to fulfill all these ancient promises 
of the sacred Hebrew Scriptures, and he does so by confronting the infection of human evil, by healing the effects of that evil, sickness, disease, death, casting out evil spirits. And Jesus takes the full weight of humanity's brokenness and corruption onto himself. He crushes the Satan, but not before he is struck with a death blow in the process, just as God said it would be. And the defining truth of the Christian movement, the doctrine most precious to all disciples of Jesus around the world for thousands of years, is that Jesus' victory over Satan, over sin and evil and suffering and death, was won in full when Jesus rose from the dead. So that Jesus has seized power over evil and death, and he has made that power available to his apprentices then and now, so they await a coming day when Jesus returns to eradicate the Satan and his work entirely, once and for all, to make everything new and restore the goodness of the garden to the world he loves. That is a story that many of us know, more or less. But we don't want that. Not if our lives or our words or our thoughts or our actions have anything to say about it. Why, why wouldn't we want that? Believe it or not, one foundational thinker on the nature of human desire was actually a church father uh, called Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. Augustine argued that at the heart of the human condition was the problem of disordered loves, meaning that one would look that, that a person would love food makes perfect sense, nothing wrong with that, but that they would love it to the point of making their bodies and lifestyles unhealthy is a problem to the point that people could die as a result. It is a disordered love. So in the Western world, influenced by Augustine's theory of rightly ordered desires, we eventually learn to say yes to certain desires and no to others to maintain mental, emotional, physical health as individuals and as a society, give or take. And at one point in the past, Western people would learn how to do this by their upbringing or culture or authority, the church, the Bible, and so on. But about a century ago, Sigmund Freud came along to disagree with Augustine's take on bad desires. Believing, like Darwin, that humans are essentially animals, Freud argued that chief among human desires is the libido, or the sex drive, but that we have been taught by our parents and culture and authority and the Bible to repress the libido rather than gratifying it. That, he argued, is the source of all neuroses. Or, put simply, when you say no to desire, Freud argued, you will be unhappy. That is one serious dichotomy. Augustine argued that humans are made in God's image, but when we allow our desires to become disordered, when those desires are not arranged under God's good authority, we will suffer as a result, like children who disobey their parents who mean to do them good. But Freud argued that human beings are animals compelled by instinct for pleasure, and that when we repress that instinct, we suffer as a result. The heart wants what the heart wants. In other words, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Hashtag do what makes you happy. And that is, of course, the creed of much of the modern Western world, especially in a place like the Pacific Northwest. Not doing what you want to do, well, that's inauthentic. There are no emojis or gifts to punctuate such a thing. Cornelius Plantinga writes this, in an ego-centered culture, Wants become needs, maybe even duties. The self replaces the soul, and human life degenerates into the clamor of competing autobiographies. People get fascinated with how they feel and with how they feel about how they feel. 
In such a culture and in the throes of such fascination, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. Another theologian writes that in such an arrangement as this, theology becomes therapy. The Bible, or the biblical interest in righteousness, is replaced by a search for happiness, holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about oneself. The world shrinks to the range of personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes. The church recedes. The world recedes. All that remains is the self. The flimsy and always contradictory faux-progressive conceit of finding your own truth runs positively contrary to the writings of the New Testament, in which doing what you can do and want to do is often, not always, but often the most foolish, destructive means of living. This is what the New Testament writers call the flesh, a way not to freedom, but to slavery and death. The so-called authentic self is a fool ruled by their desire and ultimately undone by it. So what do we do? Before we end tonight, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, feel free to consult the table of context. Context. That'd be great too. Yeah, if you have one of those, check it out. It'll help you understand what I'm saying. Table of contents. If this story about God and desire and and sin and salvation is true, what is the appropriate response to these things? Would you guys stand with me for the reading of Scripture? Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. These words are inspired by God. Thank you guys. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, look at that phrase, the good news. In Greek, it's the word euangelion. It's where we get the English word evangelism. In the first century, euangelion was neither religious nor spiritual by default. It was actually a political word. To evangelize or to preach the good news was to proclaim throughout the Roman Empire the declaration of a new king or of a new king's victory in war. So, for example, Augustus sent preachers and evangelists throughout the empire to spread his euangelion. Good news, Octavian has defeated his enemies. He is the son of God himself, come to save us and usher in an everlasting kingdom of justice and peace. And it would take a few years for the dust to settle, for Augustus to make it back home, for order to be restored to the empire. And during that time, as the gospel or euangelion, the good news went out, those who heard the good news had a decision to make. Will you receive this gospel or not? Before gospel was a religious word or a church cliche, it was a political word, a royal announcement of a new and victorious king of a new and coming kingdom, which is why Mark renders the telling thusly, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. It's not believe in God, it's not say the sinner's prayer, and it's not go to heaven when you die. There is a new king and a new kingdom, and in this kingdom, anyone is welcome. Everyone is invited. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You didn't want anything to do with God. You were dead, and God reached into your brokenness and made you capable of responding to this gift. And the response to such a thing is 
Repent and believe. But repent and believe does not mean stop doing bad things, say a magic incantation, and believe intellectually in your mind that Jesus is God and that He exists. And that's what it takes to be saved. Repent is a word that literally means turn around. It's a new way of life, an entirely new worldview. Allow God, in other words, to reorient everything you think you know about who God is, about who you are, and what it means to be a human being. Trust in God's vision, God's truth, in and through His Son, Jesus, who can do what no human or system can do. Heal, rescue, set you free, release you into true life and meaning and purpose, not just for you, but for the entire human family. This means releasing your own vision of dominion, your own bid for your own kingdom, and surrendering instead to God's better purposes for human flourishing. If you want to know which is better, our vision or God's vision, just take a look at the world. You have violence and poverty and war, oppression, racism, sexism, police brutality, civil unrest, civil war, paranoia, conspiracy obsession, environmental collapse, mental health crises, rampant addiction, the breakdown of the family, confusion, despair over basic human biology, gender, loneliness, suicide, digital idolatry, run amok. And everyone thinks, oh, it's only because the wrong people are in charge. If we could get our kings and our ideological causes in power, well, we would fix all of this. The bad news is, is that everyone has been saying that all over the world for thousands of years, and no dice. Everyone, all sides have had turns on the throne, and guess what? Same old horror show. It's not a novel or even uniquely Christian idea. All the great philosophers agree that something is fundamentally wrong with humanity. But Jesus' teaching was radical then and now because he argued that the problem is in us that the fundamental brokenness of humanity is humanity itself. Everyone is probably familiar with that little lawn placard or store signs that promise, you know, in this house or in this store we believe, followed by a handful of, you know, uh, progressive ideological statements. And there's nothing wrong with believing in stuff or articulating it. I'd be out of a job if there were. But it can create this kind of fabricated veneer around the home or the trendy coffee shop. The veneer suggests that all those awful problems are out there. They're not in here. Not, no, in this house, we believe the right stuff. But this is the lie that reigns supreme in today's fractured political hysteria and outrage culture. Whatever's wrong, it's out there. It's someone or something else. We, we must resist because us, we're awesome. It's them that's the problem. But the Bible story argues this, that it's us. It's all of us. And no amount of headlines or promises that in this house we believe will ultimately resolve the fact that hate and selfishness and ugly, twisted evil are in us. We are broken. And we want to be in charge. That's a problem. So when that happens, you get broken kingdoms ruled by broken people. Unless we allow ourselves to be saved and relinquish our death grip on the rule and reign we so badly want to instill over our own lives and over the entire world, we don't just need laws and nonprofits and hashtags. We need to be healed at a soul level because we are the problem. Those of us who have wrecked havoc on our lives, and those of us who, by all accounts, seem to have done pretty well, we all need the same saving. 
As Ortberg writes, salvation isn't primarily about going to a good place, but becoming good people as defined by becoming people of love, willing the good of others at all times, in all situations, with compassion, wisdom, courage, and resolute fidelity. We need to be saved not just from what will happen to us, but what could happen in us, from who we could become. Sin isn't just doing wrong things, but becoming the wrong person. This is why you have to understand that repentance or being saved isn't about an intellectual belief or about a magic prayer. It is about discipleship. It's about being adopted into God's family, becoming citizens of the kingdom, and it is about an imperfect, wavering, difficult, lifelong process of following Jesus. The lifelong, all-encompassing process of surrendering every part of your life and yourself more and more every day to the kingship of Jesus so that everything you do and say and think and plan and hope is being slowly, more and more over time, formed into the image of love that exists and is revealed in Jesus by the empowering of the Spirit of God in us. And he writes, says it well, The good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world, in and through Jesus and His death and resurrection. The ancient hopes have indeed been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. The ancient sickness that had crippled the whole world and humans with it has been cured at last, so that new life can rise up in its place. Life has come to life and is pouring out like a mighty river into the world in the form of a new power the power of love. The good news was and is that all this has happened in and through Jesus, that one day it will happen completely and utterly to all creation, and that we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in that transformation here and now. This is the Christian gospel. Do not allow yourself to be fobbed off with anything less. Now, to end tonight... Here's where this takes on concrete shape for the sake of an uncompromising orthodoxy, what we've been on about for the last few weeks. Just one more time, we're almost done. Turn over to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. I know, I know, you'll be fine. The story of Jesus' triumph over sin and death, the inauguration of His kingdom, the gospel announcement of His kingship, even if you don't buy any of that, it's a nice enough story. But whether you buy it or not, Jesus was never one to avoid controversy, and he certainly never bothered censoring himself to protect fragile sensibilities. So here is one of the more famous and divisive sayings of Jesus of Nazareth. Let's read from John chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says to his disciples. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, everyone, read verse 6 aloud with me. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to God, according to Jesus, except through the Son, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Now, in the Christian tradition, within what we call orthodoxy or right belief, there is no path to salvation, no cure for the human condition, no road to enlightenment, no hope for the soul or the age to come apart from Jesus. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one comes to the saving power of the true God but by Jesus of Nazareth. All competing claims to the throne of truth are fantasies or deceptions and inevitable failures. All other philosophies and worldviews and religious claims are false. Jesus and only Jesus is king, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And for all of Christianity, this precious truth has rest soundly in the die-for category. To say Jesus is Lord, which was the earliest creed of the earliest Christians, was to say with confidence and resolve, Jesus is Lord, all other gods are not. Thing is, truth is always true, whether it comes from a pastor or a grandmother or a cartoonist or a Buddhist or a Satanist or a serial killer. A true thing is a true thing, and chances are there are elements of truth in many very different worldviews. In fact, I've uh, read the Satanic Bible, and it's got some true things in it. Some of them, you're like, oh, that's good advice. And yet... And I'm serious, it says things like, be nice to children. That's one of the, ten, the commandments of the Church of Satan. Be nice to children, treat animals with kindness, that's in there. Like, oh man, good advice. <laughs> and yet, and yet, many, many worldviews have elements of truth in them or just outright truth claims in them. Only one of them, disciples of Jesus, have always believed, only one of them leads to ultimate and exclusive truth for salvation the solution to the human problem. And not only that, but hope. Jesus, within orthodoxy, is the source of all truth. Any truth echoed in any worldview is true because of Jesus. Now, for disciples of Jesus obedient to their kind and gentle master, this should never translate to aggressive, hateful smear campaigns against other people or other belief systems. Such a thing is always and only guided by the Satan, not Jesus. But it does mean that disciples of Jesus are to hold fast to courageous and uncompromising faithfulness to this truth. Jesus is the way, the only way. For followers of Jesus... The way is not me, it's not what I want, it's not in careerism, it's not in social media or self-discovery or sex or power or politics or sexual identity or a subculture or Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam. Jesus is the way. And that is a truth that we can embrace with courage and uncompromising resolve without becoming arrogant or cruel or mean-spirited or unkind because we had nothing to do with it. But it is a truth that cannot be compromised without compromising orthodoxy, discipleship to Jesus itself. Because when we truly believe that Jesus really is the only way, the only truth, the only life, we will live very differently. If my career and my work and my family will not save me, if my phone and my streaming services and my wasted time, head buried in the sand to avoid the crippling void closing in on all sides will not save me, if no amount of pleasure or distraction or power or prestige will save me, 
If Buddha or Shiva or Allah will not save me, if I believe to the core of my being that Jesus is the only way, the only person that can save, then I will live accordingly. Repent means turn around. It's a new way of life, a new worldview, allowing God to reorient everything you think you know about who God is, who you are, and what it means to be a human being. Now, this is it. Whether you follow Jesus or not, and wherever you are on your journey of following Jesus, this is a decision that you have to make again and again and again. Everybody believes the story about the world. I believe this one with God and people and freedom and evil and the Satan and the cross and the resurrection, all of it. I believe it. I really do. And a couple of weeks ago, I read from a letter I received in which someone asked me, how can you persist in this ridiculousness? That you've com- to which you've committed your life. And the, the letter's author uh, proposed different theories of why I persist in these beliefs. Was it because I was raised in it? Could be. Was it because my livelihood depends on it? That's a valid thing to accuse me of, I guess. I work for a church, professional Christian. <laughs> but however you slice it, they wondered, shouldn't you know better by now? But everyone, everyone believes a story about all of this. The the author of the letter's assumption was that they don't. None of us can confirm the stories we believe with metaphysical certitude, so we do the best with what we have, and we make a decision based in part on faith, all of us. And any decision, any story you choose will be over and against other stories and decisions. No one can believe concurrent, exclusive truth claims. You can't believe two different people saying, this is the only truth, no, this is the only truth, ah, you're both right. It just doesn't work that way. Catholics aren't Muslims, and New Agers aren't nihilists, and Mormons aren't Scientologists, though to be fair, they both have space aliens and um, science fiction authored by criminals as part of their official doctrine. My point is that it may seem like a bold statement that Jesus is making. You're either with me or against me. This is something that Jesus said. Or, I am the only way to God. All that stuff may seem like a bold statement, but every story is making the same claim. And Jesus is asking you, all of you and me, what do you have to say about it? And what will you do about it? There is no passive reaction to Jesus' statement. He stands at the door and knocks. There's no, I'll have some of it, but not all of it. There's no, I'm in for these things, but I'm out for those things. There is no, I'll take some of Jesus, but not all of it. I'll have the kingdom without the king. There is the Lord of creation and his incredible claim to be the only truth, the only life ringing out over centuries. I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. So, what will you do? How will you respond? What happens now or tomorrow? How does this change where you're going and what you're choosing and the person you want to become? Whether you've been following Jesus for many, many years or you don't follow him at all, what happens now? Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to guide and direct us as we answer these questions. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.